Father, we, we pray, please, that you might have mercy on us, that you might teach us not only to fear you but to trust you, to know what you're doing. We pray that our lives will be transformed as we hear your word and are confronted again by your majesty and power. Uh, we pray that we might see the hope in all this as well and that we might cling to that hope. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, welcome this morning. We've been working through the book of Isaiah. But uh, anyone here ever heard of Galloping Gertie? Uh, Galloping Gertie. Uh, is it a horse? Is it a person? Is it a place? Turns out it's a bridge. In 1940, the US state of Washington had a bridge built over the Tacoma, Tacoma Narrows Pass over Puget Sound. Uh, at the time, it was the third longest suspension bridge uh, in the world. Think of the Glebe Island Bridge as a suspension bridge. It's got cables you know, coming down from the top, like the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, it would cost a whopping $6 billion US dollars in 1940 which is 350 or so million dollars with inflation today. Uh, it used the latest engineering technology. It was an award-winning design and it opened a great acclaim. Anyone know what happened to the Tahoma Narrows Bridge? A little breeze blew and this happened. Mind you, this is concrete and tarmac and steel. It gets a bit worse. <laughs> that guy rescued his dog. <laughs> no. <laughs> You know how long it took before that happened after they built it? They opened it in July 1940, collapsed in November the 7th, 1940. Uh, there you go. Uh, what they couldn't have known was that the exact length of the bridge span in the middle uh, and uh, the way they designed the, uh, the side rails of the bridge uh, matched with the exact force and direction of the breeze that blew up the sound would create a standing wave that would blow the whole thing apart. Uh, like a guitar string, you know, it would just set up and cause it to wobble like that and it shook itself to pieces, four months, and it was dead. Now, most of us have probably experienced in life moments when the things we've trusted, when the, the people we've trusted, when the things that we've staked our hopes and dreams on have let us down. Uh, some of us I know have even had that happen this week. Uh, and it's terrible when it does. And for some of us, that's a crushing blow. It causes incredible grief and harm when it, when it does, when there's that kind of letdown. It might be a betrayal in a relationship or in a family. It might be that a friend or someone that we've been depending on at a critical moment has let us down. Maybe it's someone who in, in life or in family life we've trusted with money and they've turned out to be a con man who's defrauded us. And uh, it might make you sick to the stomach just thinking about it. Uh, and one of the things it can do when it happens is it leaves you with massive trust issues. How can I trust again? Who can I trust? You know, is anyone, am I ever going to be able to trust again? 
And if the question last week in the early part of Isaiah was, who will you fear? The question we are confronted with today is the question about trust. What will we trust? Is there anyone we can trust in the end? Who will we trust? Uh, We're covering this huge section of the book today from chapter 13 right through to 27, about a fifth of the book. Uh, So we're going to be whirlwind tour this morning. Uh, Time has moved on since last week and we're now at the very end of King Ahaz's reign. Last week we saw the first year of his reign when he had come to power. He had stood at the crossroads of his life uh, and he had to make a choice. Would he fear God or would he fear the enemies bearing down? And we saw he made a very bad choice. He had failed at the start of his reign to fear God. And uh, you can see on the map that was just handed out uh, how things have progressed in the 16 years that he has ruled as king. You see, the Assyrians who God had threatened as a result of his failure to bring to destroy his people have grown from that small purple zone on the map uh, to now encompass almost the entire Middle East. They have conquered nations. They have burned cities to the ground. They have deported people from their homelands. They have forced intermarriage and interbreeding between people of different races and religions in order to destroy any semblance of history and background and unity. Uh, The northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, have been wiped out. They are no more. And the only nations that have survived have been those who have paid heavily in tribute in gold and silver Uh, and they have only survived by continuing to pay thus far. And that includes Judah because Ahaz, because he feared the nations more than he feared God, stripped the nation and he stripped the temple bare of all its fittings, its gold and silver, uh, and he paid the protection money to King Tiglath-Pileser III. And worse than that, he abandoned God altogether and has devoted himself to every other God he can think of who might come to save him. But in Assyria at the same time, in the last year of King Ahaz's reign, in the year of his death, a new king there has risen to the throne, Shalmaneser V, and the protection money has run out. There is no more they can give. And Assyria's attention is going to turn like the eye of Sauron on the hobbits. Okay, It's been searching the land and all of a sudden they are not going to pay and whoom, and the armies are going to come. And as a relatively small nation threatened by this great power, Judah was being sorely tempted to look to any political or military alliance that they could find anywhere to save them. And over the next 14 chapters or so, God is going to show through Isaiah that none of the nations around are going to be able to help. They'll all prove to be galloping girties because they're all going to be destroyed themselves. They may look secure, they may offer the safety that Judah wants, but they're all about to be destroyed themselves under the judgment of God. And once again, God's going to use Isaiah and his life as an extreme visual example. It's more extreme prophecy this week. Uh, And if you thought Isaiah had it rough last week with the naming of his kids after God's judgments, you ain't seen nothing yet. But there's also a major twist in the tale which God has in store and it's a doozy and and it all comes back to this area of trust. And So who will you trust and will you trust God? Now you can see on that map in the handout all the different nations around which God, which God through Isaiah is going to be speaking about. Uh, the whole of the Middle East gets, gets a mention from what is present-day Pakistan over to uh, the right-hand side of the map. 
right down on the other side in the bottom corner to, into Egypt and Africa. And we're just going to be flying through the chapters, just skimming over it to get the gist of it. And Isaiah's attention turns, first of all, to what must have seemed at the time a very strange place to start with. Um, what was at the moment just a tiny nation, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, there was really nothing in world affairs, um, which had long ago fallen to Assyria, one of the first places to fall, and that is Babylon. Babylon. And the question is, why, why start there? Why, why start with this little-known, distant nation? Well, two reasons. One, it's clear from Isaiah 39, which we'll get to next week, that Judah and Babylon were, were well each aware of each other's existence and, and they would be sending envoys to, to do some buddy-buddy kind of stuff and maybe we can do a deal. And Isaiah is going to predict, as we'll see next week, that one day Babylon will pose an even bigger threat to Judah's security than the Assyrians now did. But secondly, Babylon was no newcomer to the world stage. Uh, its history reached back, right back to well, a very famous building early in the Bible, uh, in the early chapters of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. Everyone remember the Tower of Babel? All of humanity had gathered together to make a name for themselves in their pride and their arrogance and to, to, to show God who was, who was really in charge. And they built this massive edifice and testament to man's awesomeness and uh, claimed its independence from God. And remember, they defied God. And what had God done? He had smashed it to the ground and he had scattered them to the four winds and, and all the nations had divided and all the languages had come up so that man could no longer communicate with each other in defiance of God. Well, Babylon is what the remains of Babel became. It was built on the... Um, you know, the gravestones of Babel, if you like. And so it's the perfect symbol of, of human arrogance and pride, which puts all its hopes in itself and achievements in defiance of God, which trusts itself and its abilities and money. And, and it's the perfect example of what will seem to be the place, the true place of safety and security, unbeatable, unconquerable power. And the Bible's going to use Babylon from here on as the symbol of human power used in defiance of God. Uh, you might remember the climax of the book of Revelation is the, is the great metaphor of the great, the great dragon, the great city, Babylon, in which all the hopes and dreams of the whole world are found and kings and princes and merchants and the poor and the nobles and the navies, great and small, have all built their hopes on Babylon at the climax of the Bible. And so what is Isaiah's word about this place? Chapter 13, verse 1. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Well, we're going to skip down to verse 9. We're not going to read all the, the stuff. But see, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. And, he, and he's saying that Babylon is going to be my instrument, God's instrument, to bring judgment on the world. But then what will happen to it itself? Well, verse 19, Babylon. The jewel of kingdoms, the glory of Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. 
No shepherd will rest his flocks there, but desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds, jackals in her luxurious places. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. See, the very place where uh, uh, that had united humanity in its sinfulness in the past and was destroyed is going to do it all over again, but this time through conquest it will bring all nations together as it conquers them all, but then it's going to meet the same end again. It will be wiped out, made into a desert place, a wasteland, destroyed, and that by the hand of God for its arrogance. And, you know, anyone visited Babylon? You know, anyone living there today? This, this is true what happened, you know. But note, who is this a message to? Isaiah is not speaking to Babylon. Isaiah is speaking to Judah. It's a message about Babylon, but it's a message to Judah. And the message is this, you will find no help there. But then Isaiah's attention turns to the current world superpower, Assyria. 14.24, the Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. <laughs> Yippee, woohoo, salvation. You know, that's comforting, isn't it? Uh, that's, that's who's threatening to destroy us at this very moment. But who's going to help? Who's going to aid in this victory over the enemies? Well, what about the, Phil- uh, the Philistines? You know, the ancient enemies who had now become a pretty nothing country on the sea, uh, the border. Judah's neighbours by the Mediterranean Sea. Years before there'd been hatred and wars, but, you know, lately it's been buddy-buddy and envoys have been coming and going from uh, Philistia to Jerusalem and back again saying, maybe if we join forces, we can take them down. <laughs> uh, so should Judah put its trust In Philistia, Isaiah 14.28, this oracle came in the year that King Ahaz died, which also happened to be the year that Shalmaneser V died and was replaced by his son Sargon as king of Assyria. And the message to Philistia or about Philistia is this, do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting, venomous serpent. The poorest of the poor will find pasture and the needy will lie down in safety, but your root I will destroy by famine. It will slay your survivors. There's no hope in Philistia. They're going down too. Well, if not the Philistines in the west, what about the neighbours to the east? Moab, surely they'll help. After all, the people of Moab were distant cousins of Judah, having been the people who descended from Abraham's nephew Lot. Well, 15.1, an oracle concerning Moab. Ar in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Ker in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Dibon goes up to its temple, to its high places to weep. Moab wails over Neba and Medaba. These are all towns in Moab. Every head is shaved and every beard cut off. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the roofs and in the public squares they all wail, prostrate and weeping. And you read on, it's horror and wailing and flight and death. And he's saying it's going to spread through all the towns of Moab. Indeed, so horrific is the scene that we're told that the lakes of the nation, you know, you think of, you know, our own water supplies, you know, Warragamba Dam and Avon Dam. I don't know if you've gazed over there. He says the lakes are going to be full of blood. That is how great the slaughter will be. 
And it's this horrific scene after scene and can't look to the west for help, can't look to the east. What about to the north, to Damascus? You know, they had conspired before with Israel to come and conquer Judah. We were hearing about that last week. But maybe now they've been defeated by Syria, they might join their cause. Well, chapter 17, Isaiah says, no, they're going to become a heap of ruins. Well, what about the lands to the south, Egypt and Cush, which is kind of present-day Ethiopia and uh, and those countries there near the Horn of Africa? You know, nations at the time who weren't like today, the poorest of the poor, they were the richest of the rich. You know, prosperity, massive armies, uh, no one could take them. Chapter 18 and 19, they too will disintegrate under civil war, conquest and famine. And not their fortune tellers, not their magicians, not their wise men, not their gods will be able to stop the destruction that God is going to visit upon them. You see, here is what God says he will do to the nations, one after the other. Edom and Tyre, and it goes on and on. And we get to chapter 20, and all of a sudden, Isaiah's prophecies against these nations are no longer speculation. They're no longer conjecture. They start to come true in his lifetime. Uh, 20 verse 1, In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon king of Assyria came to Ashdod, Ashdod and attacked it and captured it. Now, Ashdod was one of the five main cities of Philistia. Okay? And it was wiped from the earth by Sargon and his armies. It was right next door to Judah. See, it's all happening. The, rea- the reality is sinking in. And I guess to, as if to emphasise the message, to underline all, Isaiah is given a task by God uh, in order to underline it all. It's his extreme prophecy. And I don't know if God asked you to do what he's going to ask Isaiah to do here, whether you would even think about doing it. Uh, you know, it goes beyond naming his kids after God's judgment, but it shows us how serious God is. Verse 2 of chapter 20. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos, the, the year that Ashdod fell. And he said to him, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Naked. <laughs> the naked prophet preaching the woes of God, stripped down to nothing in his birthday suit. Nothing left to hide him. Nothing left to cover him. And... Uh, how long do you reckon God was going to have Isaiah do that for? A couple of hours? A couple of days? Weeks? Well, threes. Threes. Of going around naked in shame and embarrassment and mockery. You get to verse 3 and you find out why God has done this. Why would he ask that of his prophet? Well, then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. Those who trusted in Cush and those who boasted in Egypt, which is what uh, in the end Judah did, they said, well, Egypt will save us and they did a massive deal. Those who trusted in them will be afraid and put to shame. In that day, the people who live on this coast will say, see what has happened to those we relied on, those we fled to for help and from deliverance from the king of Assyria. How then can we escape? 
See, like galloping Gertie in the breeze, these places which look so sure and safe, they look like they had the economic and military power in order to save, well, they were destroyed. Like Isaiah, stripped and barefoot, you know, stripped of all dignity and led away into shame. But you get to chapter 24, which we read, which sums the whole thing up. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor and for creditor. It will not matter how much money you have. It will not matter your position in society. It will not matter you know, what you think you've got protecting you. Nothing can stop it. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. And it's dark, dark stuff. And so what it might first appear just to be about local wars with the prediction of the rise and fall of Babylon, which would sweep all those nations away and then it would itself fall, all of a sudden it turns out to be about another day. Another day that God has in mind, the end of the world. This is the day of the Lord. The day when God comes in his wrath and fury to judge all and to end all rebellion. And it's all symbolised and marked by the naked prophet of God. And so I feel like as a sermon... Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, it would be fearful, wouldn't it? <laughs> and so it goes way beyond its own day. And what Isaiah is saying to Judah and what God is saying to us is that no matter where you turn, whether it is to the conquerors of today or to the former enemies or to your cousins or to your friends, whether it is to the west or the east or the north and the south, there is no help out there come judgment day. There is no one who can save you. There is no amount of money you can have in your bank account that will help you. There is no job and there is no security that you can have that will protect you from the wrath of God. Only God can save you. Only God. Come back to him. Trust him. Indeed, scattered throughout these, all these chapters are little interludes calling Judah and calling us back to God. Promises of hope and joy if we will but trust in the Lord our God. For, for example, 14.1, in the midst of the prophecy against Babylon, he says the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. And as it goes on, it's, it's the Lord who will give you relief from your suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage and your enemies. It's God alone who can save, God alone who can deliver, God alone who can be trusted. But here's the real twist in the, the whole sorry section, and, and it's a corker. Because these nations who Judah might be tempted to turn to and to ally with and to find their security and safety with, where they were sending envoys even now and they were receiving their things and trying to do deals and broker alliances, these nations and armies where they thought they would find hope and security, not only are they going to burn and crumble before your very eyes under God's heavy hand, but in the end, Judah, they are going to turn to you for help. You, know, you want to rely on them for protection, they are going to come to you. Well, more specifically, more correctly, they are going to come to Yahweh, your God, for the protection they cannot provide for themselves. And it's as if the fires that are coming are a cleansing flame which cause them not to hope in themselves. 
Uh, the most astonishing statement to that effect is in chapter 19. Uh, having pronounced the judgment and the devastation on all the nations around, having, having shown how they're going to be stripped naked of every single thing they have to cling to. Look at the result, chapter 19, verse 33. Yeah, 33. In that day, this is in the middle of the stuff about Egypt and Cush, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt. God's just said he's going to wipe them out, but there's going to be an altar to the Lord and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a saviour and a defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They'll make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them, but then he'll heal them. And then they'll turn to the Lord and he'll respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there'll be a highway from Egypt all the way across the map to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people and Assyria my handiwork, and Israel my inheritance. You can see what God's doing in all this. He is bringing the nations by judgment and destruction and calling them to himself, calling them to repentance and trust. It's, it's utterly astonishing. These nations which were the greatest enemies of God and his people would now be the heart of godly worship. Egypt, who had enslaved the Israelites all those years before, which, which is going to let them down time and time again whenever they've promised to send an army to help. But every time failing to deliver, Assyria, who had just destroyed the north and was about to take out the south, in the heart of the very places God has just promised to lay waste and destroy, in those very places, there will be those who will turn to the Lord. There is hope and there is salvation even for the worst of the enemies of God. And isn't that the good news of Jesus Christ? That though we are enemies of God, sinners who deserve condemnation, there is hope and there is mercy even for us. That the Christ has died, he's borne the wrath and the fury of the Lord God and he's calling us to forgiveness and mercy. And it's an astonishing fact that today, even even in these places, which which did come on to become major centres of Christianity. Uh, Alexandria was one of the five keys to Christianity in spreading down in Africa and things in the early centuries of the church. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of our most reliable copies of the Bible come from there, from where uh, the manuscripts are from. Uh, and, and even there today, in some of the darkest places on the face of the earth for God's people, where to be a Christian and to stand in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in Egypt and in the ISIS territories, which are where Assyria was, God has his people. Despite the opposition and the hate, because they know that Jesus is God. He is the Lord. He is the Saviour. They know that he is the only trustworthy one, that their safety and security is in him alone and they will not bow down to another. And so the question asks, the the challenge Isaiah gives us is, where are we going to place our trust? I think all too often 
The Sunday school answers that come out of our mouths are just trite and token because we know that the answers are God, Jesus, the Bible, right? <laughs> God, Jesus, the Bible. That's the answer to every question. Um, but do we really trust them? Do we rely on our God for everything and especially for all our future life in glory? Is that where we place our hope, our trust? Or is it in our bank balances, in our connections, in our health, in our social prowess, our physical you know, abilities or our cleverness? The unfortunate reality is that like the nations and like Judah itself, sometimes we need everything stripped bare. We need to be laid naked. We have to have our earthly comforts and props just stripped away from us before we will really come to him in trust and dependence and say, I have nothing else. I need you. And we should have done that in the first place. And I know even looking around that for some of us it's the darkest moments in our lives which have really brought us to come around and, and to know Jesus. You know, we think of Tanya with the MS just a few years ago. Here you go, this life-changing diagnosis. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, she comes to Christ. My friend Paul Jew um, had a, a car accident with his family and their daughter was killed in the back seat. He was an atheist. And as a result of the ministry, the pastor who kind of looked after the family, he went, I have nowhere else to turn to except for Jesus. And he became a Christian. And then he became a minister. Uh, and he's been a, a missionary with the with BCA. Uh, and then came back to one of the hardest parishes in Sydney because he thought it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to serve him. And you can probably think of hundreds of other examples of that kind of thing, of being stripped bare and then going, you know what, I, there is only one I can rely on. But how can you tell if you're really trusting God and, and really have staked your life and your future on him? How, how would trusting Jesus and his word above all else express itself? What would it look like? Well, here's some tests, just some thoughts to go away and think through, Okay, in terms of self-evaluation. It'll express itself in, in what you most dream of and aspire to for yourself. Now, what is it that I'm really hoping will happen? Is your greatest hope that Jesus will see you safely home? It'll express itself in the dreams and aspirations you have for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. There's a few at 8 o'clock who are in that situation. Yeah. What do you want the most for them? That they be happy? That they have a good education? That they got a good job? They have a good family? That you know they're happy, wealthy and wise and, and they're altogether worldly? Or that they're faithfully serving Jesus to the end? It'll express itself in prayer. Uh, when you're in trouble, do you go to prayer as the first thing? Like Who, who do you say is going to help me? If anyone can. More than that, you know, do you commit your ways and your life and your family and your future into God's hands? Are you, are you bringing your life to him and the decisions you've got to make and the lives of those around you because you know that in the end he's the one whose will is the only one that really matters? He, he's the one who rules history, not me, not, not the banks, not Tony Abbott. It'll express itself in what we choose to fear that the kings and the kingdoms and empires of this world do not rule. They may think that they do. They may act as if they do. They may threaten your life. They may threaten your security. They may threaten to withhold their good favour from you. But you don't have to worry about the things of this world as if this is all there is. 
God's kingdom is the kingdom that matters. And God is the one you can trust. It will express itself in, in our willingness to do battle with our secret sins and desires which, which may always remain with us in this life. There's no promise that temptation and struggle will go away but which we're called not to give into, but to stand in righteousness, knowing the truth and serving God through the pain. It will express itself in an unwillingness to compromise our integrity in our dealings with people. That when we're confronted about being a Christian, whether it's in our courses or in our workplace or in our families, that we will say, you know what, I'm sticking with Jesus because he's the only one I can trust. I'm not going to trust you on this. God has said. God has promised. God knows what he's talking about. He is not a galloping Gertie. It'll express itself in our absolute confidence in the cross of Christ that we have no other claim before God than that he died to save us. It'll express itself in our confidence that God's king will return, be it tomorrow or next week or next century or next millennium, and he'll return to judge and to bring the day of the Lord, but also to save and so we won't be those who will scoff and scorn, and, but those who wait patiently for his coming and pray that he will come. And we'll be those who work for his kingdom by holding out the word of life, that word which offers freedom and pardon, that word of the gospel which, which brings people from death to life, from hell to heaven, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is calling people over, from all over this world, from even the darkest corners of the globe and from every strata of society to know him and to trust him and to find their confidence, their hope, their future, their security, the one who is utterly worthy of that trust. See, it will express itself in everything. Do you trust him? I mean, do you really trust him? Will you trust him? I guess that's the more important question. Will you? Because he's the one who is worthy, the only one who is worthy of that kind of trust. Father, these are dark words of judgment and destruction. And it's a fearful thing to fall into your hands. But Father, we thank you for the hope and security that you have offered and that you have called us to in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would abandon all other hopes that call for our attention and turn us away from you. That we would not rely on the people of this world, the things of this world, as if they can save us. Help us to put them in their place. And we pray that we might trust you in everything. That when you speak against our sins or about how we're to stand or, or whatever it is, that we will do it knowing that you are with us knowing it's your kingdom that matters, knowing that it's your son who will win in the end. We thank you that our hope is secure because of the cross of Christ and his resurrection. We thank you for the hope of heaven and that we know that we will have all joy and peace and security in the end. And we thank you that you are good for your promise, that you are worthy of your promise and our trust. And so help us to trust you each and every day. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing uh, what's well, an old hymn to a new tune about trust in the Lord and that we're not going to trust anything else.